Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at Patient Worthy. And today we're going to be discussing rare disease dermatology, specifically two conditions, pemphigus and pemphigoid. These are rare autoimmune disorders that present as blistering on the skin, commonly on the mucous membranes of the body, such as the mouth. And to help in the discussion today, we have a very special guest. Dr. Stephen Chen is an assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and director of medical education at the Massachusetts General Hospital Department of Dermatology. Dr. Chen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. We're glad to have you on the show. To start with, can you give us an introduction to these conditions, uh, pemphigus and pemphigoid? What are these conditions and why does the skin start to blister? Sure. So pemphigus and pemphigoid are in this family of autoimmune blistering diseases where clinically what you see is you just start to see blisters, like you mentioned, in the mouth and on the skin. And the reason for that is because the way I think about it is that your immune system is now attacking your skin. The other way that I kind of describe it to my patients is that if you think about the skin like a brick wall, the different bricks are laid on top of each other. And in between the bricks, you've got all the mortar that holds it together, all the glue that holds all those bricks together. And when your immune system starts to produce antibodies that will then target that glue, target the proteins that hold those bricks together, you can imagine that that wall starts to fall apart a little bit. And that's exactly what's happening in the skin. If you look at the top layer of the skin, what we call the epidermis, all these skin cells are called keratinocytes and they lay on top of each other, just like in a brick wall. When you dissolve the glue in between them, that's when the blisters form. And the stuff that dissolves that glue are the autoantibodies. It's your, your own immune system that's creating these antibodies that go and attack your own proteins. And so unfortunately, it's basically the patient's immune system attacking themselves, which is what causes those blisters. And where on the body do these blisters typically show up? I know the mouth is one common one. This is a condition that might often be uh, first uh, noticed at a dentist appointment, Um, but is it limited to the mouth? Can it show up elsewhere on the body? So what's really important to know is that it can, first of all, it can happen anywhere. Pemphigus and pemphigoid are actually two extremely diverse groups of diseases, meaning that although commonly they will have blisters that occur in the mouth and the skin, depending on the subtype of pemphigus you have, you may have more in the mouth or less in the mouth. So for example, pemphigus commonly is split into two main subtypes. The first is called pemphigus vulgaris, and the other one is called pemphigus foliaceus. Pemphigus vulgaris tends to include the mucous membranes. So that really means that the mouth is where you see a lot of disease. Whereas pemphigus foliaceus by definition only occurs on the skin and it won't involve the mouth. And the reason for that is a little bit more complicated, but basically it just depends on where the target of those antibodies are. So there's a lot more target in the mouth and there's a lot more target for pemphigus foliaceus in the skin. And so depending on where it occurs on the body, it can actually help me or your dermatologist figure out what type of disease you might actually have. But the bottom line is, unfortunately, it can happen anywhere, even in the eyes, even farther down in the throat. So it's really important that you are telling your dermatologist about all your symptoms so that we, as your dermatology team, can take the best care of you as possible. And is there a typical profile uh, of a pemphigus or pemphigoid patient? So it can happen at any age, but we tend to see pemphigus and pemphigoid happen more frequently in our elderly patients. 
In Pemphigus vulgaris, we tend to see that it really starts in the mouth and it can spread to the rest of the body. And again, Pemphigus foliaceus really tends to be on the skin and does not involve the mucosal membranes. Bullous pemphigoid, or now we're moving to the pemphigoid group of diseases, those tend to occur I think the main difference to think about with the pemphigoid group for bullous pemphigoid, it tends to be itchy versus pemphigus, which tends to be a little bit more painful. There are other types of pemphigoid as well. And those other types can involve, again, the eyes can involve the scalp, can involve the mouth more frequently. One kind of trick that we think about on the dermatology side is that pemphigus ends with an S and pemphigoid ends with a D for, and so the D can stand for deep and the S stands for superficial. Meaning when we see pemphigus, it tends to be higher up in the skin. That's where the disease is happening. And pemphigoid tends to happen deeper in the skin. And so those are all tricks that we use to help figure out what type of exact disease that you might have. But in general, patients are pretty healthy when they get this disease. Some patients do get this as a response to other things. So for example, there are, there's a type of pemphigus called perineoplastic pemphigus. What that means is that it is in response to potentially a cancer that you might have, or bullous pemphigoid can happen because of a drug that you've recently been started on. So it's important for your dermatologist to ask your, take your history, ask about new exposures, ask about other symptoms, because we're always trying to figure out if there's a trigger that we can take away, that we can address, and if not, what the appropriate treatment might be so that you can get more comfortable literally in your skin. Uh, what other conditions are often confused with pemphigus and pemphigoid? Sure. I, I think that's a really great question. I think because we see blisters on the skin, I will say it, usually there's not a ton that gets confused with it because once you see blisters on the skin, you're kind of in a, in a different camp, a different category of skin disease. However, the ones that we always worry about people missing are herpes infections because herpes infections like uh, shingles or chicken pox or even just regular old herpes, um, all of those things can actually create blisters in the skin as well. And so we always want to be very conscientious of not missing a diagnosis of pemphigus or pemphigoid and calling it herpes or shingles or chickenpox or vice versa. Certain subtypes of pemphigus can also be confusing. So that pemphigus foliaceous subtype, because it's so superficial, because it's so high up in the skin, sometimes the blisters aren't even noticeable from the patient's perspective. And so a lot of times that rash might look like psoriasis, might even look like eczema. And so it's important to have kind of a high level of suspicion when you notice these things pop up and whether they're not just the garden variety rashes that we tend to see in the dermatology office. Because this can present in different ways and there is a, a range of blistering diseases, what's the road to diagnosis typically like for a patient with one of these conditions? Absolutely. The, first of all, it's important to be seen by a board-certified dermatologist, someone who has spent time studying dermatology, who has taken the exams to know exactly what they're talking about, because this is really a group of diseases that's owned by dermatology. In terms of management, in terms of research, uh, there, there really aren't any other huge kind of groups in the medical sphere that really take care of pemphigus and pemphigoid as much as dermatology does. In terms of the diagnosis, once you see a dermatologist, the most common and most helpful test is a biopsy. And when a biopsy is taken, usually two are taken side by side. The first one is taken for regular, like a regular old biopsy for pathology where we send it to the lab. And then the pathologist will look under the microscope to see what the cells look like. 
And from that biopsy specimen, we can tell where is that level of split? Where is your brick wall or your epidermis or your skin starting to fall apart? And that's really helpful in helping us localize where exactly the glue might be dissolving. The second biopsy that's critical is something called a direct immunofluorescence. The biopsy is done in the exact same way. It's just that the test is run in a different way and we use a different type of medium when we send it to the lab and it allows us to actually look for antibodies that are attacking the skin. And so for example, in bolus pemphigoid, we'll see all those antibodies light up on this immunofluorescence test at the bottom of the epidermis. Whereas in pemphigus, we'll see those antibodies cause the skin to light up in between the keratinocytes or the skin cells or those bricks. And so the pattern of that immunofluorescence on that second test really helps us clinch the diagnosis. So that's the most critical test as a first step. We have a lot of other tests that we can use as well. There are blood tests that we can use to measure the level of antibody in the blood. There's also tests called an indirect immunofluorescence. And I don't wanna to get too complicated here, but it, essentially what we're doing is we're taking the patient's blood and then we're trying to test it for the presence of those antibodies by having it react with some other sample, basically not the patient's skin, but another sample, but using the patient's blood instead. It's the combination of those tests that really allow us to give the patient a firm diagnosis and then move to treatment from there. And I know initial contact with a patient is also very important. Can you explain how the skin exam changes how you approach a patient? Absolutely. So the skin exam really holds a lot of answers for us. So like I said previously, pemphigoid is a little bit deeper and pemphigus is a little bit more superficial. So how that translates to the skin exam is that if you have a deeper process occur, the blisters look different than if you have a superficial process. You might imagine if you've got a deeper process, those blisters are a little bit more uh, what we call tense, meaning they stand up. And if you push down on the blister, it doesn't move around, it doesn't spread out. Whereas with pemphigus, because it's higher up, it's more superficial, the blisters look, the technical term we use is flaccid, which just means that it droops a little bit. And actually there's something called a Nikolsky sign where if we rub right next to the blister and we can create a new blister, then it's probably more in the pemphigus family than in the pemphigoid family. That is just, if you look at a single blister, that testing, that appearance to it really helps us a ton. The other thing on top of that is distribution, which we talked about earlier. So if I see a ton of stuff in the mouth and I'm seeing that flaccid blister with a positive Nikolsky, I can pretty much say that we're in the pemphigus family. It's probably pemphigus vulgaris. Let's do some testing to verify that. Versus on the flip side, if I see a tense blister, one that's standing up that doesn't spread when I rub next to it, a negative Nikolsky, there's nothing in the mouth and they're very itchy, then I'm probably going to say, this is most likely bullous pemphigoid, let's do some testing and verify that. Um, and so the skin exam really helps us a lot. But as you can tell, we still take some steps to confirm the diagnosis because the treatments for this, which we'll talk about later, can be pretty strong and we wanna make sure we have the right diagnosis before we go down that path. And what can a patient expect for their first appointment for these diseases? So the first time you see a dermatologist for these diseases, it's really important to come with all the records that you have. Because if you have prior biopsies, prior results from your lab testing, whether that's immunofluorescence or from the blood or from biopsies, it's really helpful to actually have those with you or to have them faxed to the doctor's office beforehand. 
In terms of what to expect when you arrive, your dermatologist should review all that information with you and then obviously do a full skin exam. They wanna look everywhere, including the mouth, ask you questions about if you have symptoms in the eye and the mouth, um, also the genitalia, because those are that's another area that can be involved as well. And taking all the prior information that you had and your clinical exam at the time, Together, you can come up with a plan for the possibility of more testing if necessary, or moving on to discussion of therapy. The testing we've kind of discussed already, so let's assume that you've already confirmed the diagnosis, then the next step is really to figure out what makes the most sense in terms of therapy in relation to the other medical conditions you might have, whether or not there's a pandemic right now, um, what risks and benefits of each treatment exist. And that's a conversation that's important to have at length with your dermatologist so that you understand everything that you need to before deciding on what's best for you. And let's move on to treatments. How are these two conditions currently managed? So you can imagine that because it's your own immune system that's attacking your skin, the main principle of treating these diseases is to calm your immune system down. And what that means is that we will give some type of often immunosuppressant in order to make your immune system stop making those antibodies that attack your skin. That can come in a variety of ways. If it's mild, then we might use topical creams. If it's not so mild, we might reach for prednisone or systemic steroid, but never for a long period of time. If we're using a systemic steroid because of all the different side effects that those can carry, we typically only use it for weeks at a time. And it's a bridge to another type of immunosuppressant that might be a pill, it might be an infusion, it might be an injection, but the overarching goal is to calm the immune system down so that you stop making those antibodies. There are also non-immunosuppressive options, and you might say, wait, why don't we just do that? Because if I don't need to suppress my immune system, that would be best, and I absolutely agree. The main issue here is how severe your disease is, because if it's very severe, those non-immunosuppressive options usually don't work as well and usually take longer to kick in. So it's really a decision that has to be made at the time based on how severe your pemphigus or your pemphigoid might be. The other thing I'll mention is that all bets are off in the setting of a pandemic. Right now with COVID, it's really important to think about the risk of immunosuppression. It's always important to think about the risk of immunosuppression, but especially during a pandemic, it's important to think about how that might affect the risk of getting COVID. And so for that reason, we do push a lot more of the non-immunosuppressive or mildly immunosuppressive options right now before we reach for the more, the kind of the, the bigger guns, the stronger immunosuppressants for our patients. That makes sense. And so you mentioned earlier, these conditions are, are not currently curable, but they are manageable through treatment. Uh, what's on the horizon in terms of new developments for these conditions? That's a wonderful question. There are some really smart people working on this problem right now. Um, for the first thing that I would mention is that there's a lot of interest in repurposing medications that are used for other dermatologic and non-dermatologic diseases in the treatment of pemphigus and pemphigoid. And so, for example, uh, there's been a lot of interest in using things like dupilumab, which is currently a drug that's approved for eczema or atopic dermatitis to see how that works. And then furthermore, there are a lot of other options out there that people are interested in trying to repurpose for the treatment of pemphigus and pemphigoid. Something that's been pretty exciting, albeit very pretty aggressive for patients that have really hard to treat disease is this new idea of CAR T-cell therapy, where you're actually taking your own immune system, 
reprogramming it and then putting it back in in order to basically target the cells that are making those antibodies. And that is very experimental. That's the stuff that's on the horizon. Uh, there are some really smart people working on it, uh, but that's certainly not something that I would give one of my patients because there, we have a lot of other options before we get there. But just know that research in this area is certainly exciting and changing, and I'm hoping will open up many more treatment options for our patients in the future. Okay, and do you have any resources for pemphigus and pemphigoid patients, uh, support groups or advice? To be honest, most of the patients that see me, by the time they get to me, they've already found the support groups. There are a lot of support groups on Facebook and other social media channels where there are communities of folks who are suffering from pemphigus and pemphigoid. There's a lot of discussion on those groups about different specialists because in a, while the dermatologist is managing a lot of this, dermatology can't get to certain areas. Meaning if you have a lot of blisters, let's say in the throat, I might refer you to an ear, nose and throat or an otolaryngologist to help out. Or sometimes we need the dentist to really help with us too, or the oral medicine specialist. So every dermatologist probably has a team of people that they call on to help them manage their more complicated pemphigus and pemphigoid patients. And all that information is often shared in these patient support groups. There is one particular support group that I often think about, and that's the International Pemphigus and Pemphigoid Foundation. And they do a lot in terms of support for their patients, uh, in terms of providing programming for better understanding of the disease. Um, and uh, they've, I've really seen them even host conferences for patients where they invite experts in pemphigus and pemphigoid to discuss uh, kind of like what we're doing now, the, uh, new changes, new therapies on the horizon. Uh, but that would certainly be one that I would recommend looking into. And what are some ways that friends and family can be supportive of someone with a blistering disease? That is such a wonderful question because I do think, you know, it always takes a village. And so what I often see in my patients when I have their friends and family who come and come to the visit together and really support them, I think one of the most helpful things is just to be another set of ears, another set of eyes, someone else who is also interested in learning about these diseases, because it's always helpful to have someone else who's critically thinking about the different options, the different paths, the different possibilities for the future to help you think about that. Also, if it's your first time seeing a dermatologist and you've got this new diagnosis of an autoimmune disease, it can certainly be overwhelming. And in that sense, it's really helpful to have someone else there to help you take notes, to help take it in so that that person can compare notes afterwards. You can say, oh, wait, did, did the doctor say this or did they say that? Um, and someone else can kind of help you with that. I will say it's a little bit difficult now because of COVID. There's a lot of restrictions on which visitors, how many visitors can be in the room at the same time. What we really try to do if we have those restrictions in place is to be active about calling family members, calling friends, FaceTiming them into the visit so that they can be there, albeit virtually, for that visit. The other thing um, that I think is really helpful is obviously just having friends and family there as your support network for your coping network, um, and also just someone who can help you out with the logistics of being a, a pemphigus or a pemphigoid patient. You might need someone to help you with rides to get to your infusions or need someone to help you with dressing changes at home. And so having someone that you can really trust to help you with that is so, so helpful. You as a pemphigus, pemphigoid patient, or your family member as a support person for someone suffering from pemphigus and pemphigoid really need to feel comfortable with the dermatologist that's taking care of you with the care team that you have. 
The reason I say that is because this is someone who's really going to be guiding you through therapy, who's going to be guiding you through some pretty difficult times in terms of the different decisions that need to be made. So you need to find someone that you can trust, someone who is accessible, someone who surrounded themselves with a good team of nurses and residents and, and support staff, as well as other physicians and healthcare professionals so that they have a deep bench of people that you can go to in case something happens. And so I, I certainly think that I, I'm not trying to say that I'm the best person for this because I think I'm one of many, many very well qualified dermatologists to take care of this disease. But I always want my patients to feel comfortable and to feel like they can come to me with their concerns and their issues, no matter when it might be, or no matter how trivial they might think it is. Because when you're dealing with an autoimmune disease, really nothing is trivial. Everything can be concerning. And I just want our listeners to know that you should feel comfortable with your provider, with your physician, going to them with those questions. All right. Well, Dr. Chen, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, you've given us a lot of great information about these two conditions, and we really appreciate your expertise in this area. Of course. It was such a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you'd like to find out more information about pemphigus and pemphigoid, you can go to the International Pemphigus and Pemphigoid Foundation website at pemphigus.org. That's P-E-M-P-H-I-G-U-S dot org. And we'll have a link to that website in the show notes for this episode. And if you want to keep up with the latest in rare disease news, you can do that anytime by visiting our website at patientworthy.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for patientworthy. Thank you to our listeners that have been leaving reviews on their favorite podcast platforms. It may seem like a small thing, but those reviews really do help us and we appreciate the feedback. And as always, thanks for listening. 